Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by Alina Gertzman who is the Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Art, History and Art Department at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Alina is going to help us learn about and understand something called the Dance of Death which is also referred to as Dance Macabre in French. Elena is the author of a book called The Dance of Death in the Middle Ages, Image, Text, Performance. Now, if you're not familiar with the term Dance of Death, you may have seen visual representations of it where death is pictured, usually in the form of a skeleton, appearing in the living world, ready to take away its next victim. Death might be leading them by the hand or tapping them on the shoulder. So, Dance of Death is a rather grim art genre that appears in books, frescoes and murals, paintings, music, sculpture and dance. But let's let Alina explain. Welcome, Alina. Hello, Richard. Hello, it's lovely to have you on. It's lovely to be here. Okay, a big question to start. When, where and why did the Dance of Death begin to appear in illustrations and art? So this is really a big question. As far as we know, one of the earliest representations of the Dance of Death appeared in Paris at the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents in 1425. Now, you have to understand that such a cemetery was a truly communal place. It bordered the city's chief marketplace. It was used for public sermons. Uh, Prostitutes went there to pick up clients. Uh, The dance itself was destroyed in the 17th century when the city decided to widen its streets, but it survives in woodcuts of Guillaume Marchand, and those were published in 1485. So that's how we know about it. Why is a much more difficult question. I can certainly tell you why not. The Dance of Death did not appear, contrary to popular opinion, in the wake of the plague or the Black Death which, as you probably know, killed off a better half of the European population. Now, the Black Death really reached its height between 1347 and 1350. The Dance of Death gained popularity in the 15th century, so much later. The epidemics by then have subsided dramatically. The disease underwent radical transformations. Uh, It stopped being the ultimate equalizer, which is what the dance of death imagery is really all about, right? In later epidemics, it struck mainly children and adults seem to have developed immunity to disease. So I think that we should rather think about the dance of death as part and parcel of a culture that was deeply steeped in anxieties about the nature of bodily death and its spiritual consequences. So the 15th century, 14th, 15th centuries, this was a time of unrest and generally a declining trust into religious, in religious institutions. That's probably a consequence of the Great Schism when Europe had two popes, it was a disaster. So at this point, we get these lay religious movements formed. And what they do is extol individual religiosity, and they channel it into more personal conduits of faith. 
So instead of the blanket response of you will be saved or you will be damned, we rather have a stress on the responsibility for one's relationship with God, for the accountability for one's actions. So your path towards salvation is forged through the scrutiny of your own life, yeah, and the confrontation with your own death. So this is the sentiment that I think is very familiar and recognizable in the dance macabre cycles, which channel concerns about the body into individualized confrontations between mankind and mortality. So we have these murals, for example, and we have these dancing figures, and below we have a dialogue between death and the living, where death is making fun of the living, and it's recounting their earthly deeds, and it mocks their former possessions, and it scorns their everyday behavior, and so it points to the necessity of self-examination and self-reliance. Another thing to, to point out here is the appearance of the preacher as a master of ceremonies in the dance of death. And that is very important. Dancers are rarely on their own. The preacher stands at the head of the ceremony and in a way he narrates it. It becomes a visualized sermon. So the popularity of mendicant preachers was on the rise in the late Middle Ages. They often explored the subject of death in their sermons. They were fond of pulling skulls out of their bags and showing those skulls to their audiences. They were very dramatic. They were very theatrical. And so mendicant friars are not just given really prominent positions in the dances of death, but also a favorable treatment, which is very unusual. Um, the themes prevalent in mendicant discourses are exactly the same as we find in the dance of death. So the concept of death as a mirror, death's macabre effects on the body. They love to enumerate what's going to happen to your body after you die. Death's power of inversion. And then again, the importance for taking responsibility for one's own life. So I would say that the rise of lay religiosity is, was a huge factor. Why was it referred to as a dance? Oh, this is a wonderful question, and there are very long answers to this. Um, death and dance were linked very closely in the late Middle Ages, and there are these wonderful and terrifying stories about dances, dances leading, in fact, to death. Uh, so yes, dancing until the point of death, miraculous dances, demonic dances, the dead coming out of their graves and dancing in the cemeteries. So the two were very closely linked. I also see the term memento mori used quite frequently. Can you explain what that means, please? So memento mori is simply an exhortation to keep the awareness of death in your mind to remember always that one day you too will die. This is what it literally means, memento mori. So a skull on your desk, Richard, would serve as a memento mori, or an hourglass, or an image of wilting flowers or rotting fruit. Lovely. <laughs> right, it's, it's glorious. So, you know, the dance of death is not so much referenced along with memento mori, right? It is the ultimate memento mori. 
So just how short was life expectancy in Europe in the 15th century? So it really depended on social class, on gender, on geography, on a decade. So we think of it as a long 15th century, but it is a century and um, conditions varied. Elites often, but not always, lived you know, longer than others, but those in the military died younger. Um, some estimate that the lifespan increased quite a bit in the 15th century, actually. So you had a good chance, if you were a noble man, uh, to live through your early to mid-50s. The main thing was to make it through your early childhood. And right. then for women, it was to survive childbearing age. So if you, a man, would survive through your childhood into your 20s, you were likely to survive some decades after. There seems to be many factors that affected life expectancy. Disease, uh, diet, um, the place where you lived, your social class, right. how well, I mean, the same things that affect our lifespan now, quite frankly. Would it be fair to say that there's a, a strong element of black humour in the dance of death? Oh, for sure. It's a pretty hilarious genre, if you look at it closely. Um, so we have personified death in the dance macabre, and what it does is, as I mentioned, it mocks its victims, and especially the privileged ones. It is derisive, it is disdainful, it is contemptuous, right? And it doesn't so much dance as prance. It's a prance of death. The victims always try to argue. Um, so in the Parisian dance that I mentioned as perhaps the first one, we have this figure of the sergeant. And sergeant gets supremely angry with death and he quarrels with it. And he makes an absolute fool of himself. And then he finally admits that he's unable to escape death. Um, another one, a constable, is grabbed by death. And as he's dying, he's still telling death about his grand plans, you know, to assail castles and amass riches. So it operates, the whole genre operates on the rhetoric of inversion. Right, musicians become morbid skeletal performers and dancing, which is generally a pleasurable activity, becomes the pursuit of death. And, you know, the bishop and the emperor who are expected to live longer are snatched by death before the peasant and the craftsman. So it's a carnival in a way, it's this eternal carnival with a very uncomfortable mixture of joy and fear. So yes, I'd say black humor par excellence. So in terms of books, the, the woodcuts of uh, an artist called Hans Holbein uh, of The Dance of Death uh, seem particularly important. Can you explain why they became so influential? Um, scholarly and public tendency to privilege early modern art over medieval art? <laughs> um, no. So in many ways, Holbein introduced a very different conception of the subject. Again, woodcuts were published before, before him, and many things in his cycle really stayed the same. So we still have hierarchy of characters. We still have this customary medieval satire. It's still ruthless. Um, each print deals in detail with each character. The Pope really gets mocked. 
Um, so instead of this continuous, oh yeah, the Pope gets two deaths instead of one. It's great. Two deaths? Why is that? Two deaths. Well, he he had something to say about the Pope, I suppose. All right. Um, so in, instead of this long continuous procession, uh, we have uh, a series of vignettes. So again, not revolutionary, but what Holbein did is he inserted several additional images before and after his dance of death. So before he had biblical scenes, the creation of all things, Adam and Eve in paradise, what was it, the expulsion from paradise, Adam tilling the earth. So they preface the dance and then at the end he puts the last judgment and the bones of all men and then this symbol, the emblem of death. So what he gives us is this comprehensive view of the history of humankind from creation through the last judgment with the dance of death as this necessary and repeating episode in this chain of events. So it's a very compelling story. His prints were also widely disseminated, right? One cannot disseminate murals. And what is interesting is that various editions were published by both Catholic and Protestant printers within the span of four years. This is in the age of Reformation. It was all in the framing. So Catholic editions were accompanied by essays of Jean de Vauzel. He was a Catholic cleric and the book was dedicated, that edition, to another ardent Catholic. And then the Protestant edition instead, including a series of moralizing essays like The Medicine of the Soul and The Form and the Manner of Consoling the Sick, which were both distinctly Protestant in spirit. So Holbein appealed to all, which is perhaps where his success really lay. What's the most beautiful example of the dance of death in, in your opinion? Well, this is subjective, um, but I am partial to the dance of death in my hometown in Tallinn, Estonia. It's painted in the late 15th century by Bernd Notke, and it is a gorgeous piece. It's the only one from the late Middle Ages to survive on canvas. It's, so, um, go ahead. So it's a, pain, it's a painting. It is huge, long, it survives in a fragment. We only have, I think, about 13 figures left. Uh, right. But it was painted on canvas and it was shipped from Lübeck to Tallinn and it was displayed in St. Nicholas Church and it's still there. And it's just gorgeous, figures are elegant, there's this beautiful cityscape and the landscape and death figures are both hilarious and terrifying. I love That piece got me into studying the subject, so I'm partial. Wow. I was going to ask what's the scariest example of Dance of Death? But listening to you speak and describing all the humor, that sounds like a dumb question now. You know, I, I always wonder, it is humorous, but it is meant to be, it's not a dumb question at all, it is meant to be both humorous and scary. And it is an interesting question because these dances have not survived well. They were destroyed in huge amounts for a variety of reasons. So, you know, we, we actually we do have a dance that to me personally is absolutely terrifying. In part, I think because it doesn't survive in the best condition. So there is a painting of the Dance of Death in Pierre Maria. It's in Brittany. Um, it's uh, this wonderful church 
um, in, 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 in Bretagne, and it's not in a terribly good state. And it, there, it, it's quality, it's a, bit of, it's a bit uncanny. The palette is limited, figures now appear as silhouettes, skeletons at times seem to wear animal masks. And then among all men, they're all men with an exception of a woman, and she's facing forward, and she's not grasped or flanked by death, but instead she is herself reaching her arms out to her neighbors, the usurer and the doctor. So perhaps she is death. And it wouldn't be unusual to represent death as a woman in the late Middle Ages. Well, anyway, it's a tremendous and frightening painting. How did the dance of death continue after the medieval period? Ah, so this is another good question to which I probably will need to provide a fairly long answer. Um, so in the 16th century, what we see at first is your basic perpetuation of the traditional dance of death iconography. But it also became included into historical or biblical narratives. So I already mentioned Holbein, who flanks it with uh, you know, expulsion from paradise and last judgment. So, for example, we have this wonderful mural uh, we did in Bern, and the artist, Nicolas Manuel, what he does is he includes crucifixion, the fall, the God giving Moses tablets of law, but also new characters, um, the prostitute, the Turks, the Jews, and then himself. So this introduction of new characters and ultimately situations uh, becomes a hallmark of later dances of death, in particular in the 19th century. So in the 19th century, we have the, the dance of death flourishes mainly in print, and it moves away from religious context. And it caricaturizes current events, and it features current inventions. So. As early as 1785, we get dances of death that include, for example, the creation of gunpowder and its deadly consequences, right? The Industrial Revolution brings along new technologies, all useful, all dangerous. So in response, artists began to include in their dances death by car, death by tramway, death by an airship. So, right, in the 19th century, apparently, there was a myriad of ways to die. You know, and again, you have to understand, newspapers dedicated daily columns to the unusual accidents that were brought upon by new inventions. You know, people were hit by trams, panicked, jumped out of trains, shot themselves, were shot by others, caught fire on gas stoves. So, fun stuff. So, the alpine climber became very popular because people traveled a lot more. Uh, so did the railway switchman since there were so many different ways the poor man could die. And then in 1830, death arrived not by foot, but by transport. So we have this uh, wonderful set of prints called uh, Voyage pour l'Eternité, the, the, the trip to eternity. And death appears as a friendly guide who directs passengers into an omnibus, right? So that's 19th century. In, in, the, um, in the 20th century, dances of death, and you have to understand, now we're entering an age of genocide and mass murder and wars. So many German artists engaged with this theme in the wake of the First World War. 
And then after the Second World War, the Nazis became the target of the Danse Macabre. So we have Paul Weber's Totentanz, for example, and it deals exclusively with the fascist movement. Actually, an interesting synthesis of 20th century events can be found in Fritz Eichenberg's Dance of Death. It was produced in 1983. And so his woodcuts include Hell's Angels, gun sales, prostitution, war, drugs, uh, children coerced into playing battlefield. And then we have death. He casts personified death in the role of a pimp, a military recruiter, a death row executioner. And then as a nod to the religious context uh, of the original dance of death, he includes this terrifying woodcut called the crucifixion and death is cast as a Nazi officer and it stands in front of a barbed wire fence and then entangled in this fence is a crucified emaciated man with a one strand of barbed wire creating a semblance of a halo around his head and then on the right Eichenberg lists concentration camps from Auschwitz to Treblinka to Bergen-Belsen Let's jump to modern times. Now, The Book Thief by Marcus Suzak, um, uh, is that a modern example of the dance of death? Uh, death is a character in the book. You can hear his thoughts on humanity. I loved that book, I have to tell you. I would not call it the dance of death. Okay. As you said, it is narrated by death. Um, and the dominant voice is death's voice even when it describes its victims present and ostensibly future ones. Um, this death does have a very dry sense of humor, but its equalizing force is not stressed. It's rather the arbitrariness of human cruelty that becomes this great equalizer. And I think what struck me, I was reading it when I was writing um, this book actually, the concept of the mirror that is evoked in both is evoked very differently. So in the dance of death, we get this exhortation for the beholder to see the painting or print as a possible mirror. But Suzak, I think, suggests that the only way to glimpse death is to look into the mirror. So death is ourselves, not an external assailant, but an internal force. One final question, which we ask to everybody, what book or books are you reading presently? Oh, several, yes. Uh, fiction, I am reading La Vie d'Ars, A Man Lies Dreaming. Have you read it? No, no, tell if, us about it. If you enjoy The Book Thief, I think you'd enjoy this one. It's heartbreaking. Well, it takes place in an alternate history, so it's a little bit Philip Roth-ish okay. in that. Um, and they're communists and not fascists took over Germany and Hitler lives in London and um, he's a private detective. So it sounds very silly. It is not. And it is framed by our history. So okay. the man who, who lies dreaming is the man in the concentration camp in our reality. So in a way, it, it's spawned by his imagination. I just started Roberto Bolaño's The Spirit of Science Fiction, which I am okay. loving. Uh, nonfiction, I am reading Lawrence Krauss, A Universe from Nothing, which is basically trying to answer the basic question, 
why there is something rather than nothing. And um, I just finished my new book on medieval concepts of nothingness and of absence and their relationship to visual culture. So it's a, it's a fabulous and fun read for me. Medieval concepts of nothingness. Uh, can you explain? Uh, well, you know, my book will be coming out next year. Um, I am looking at the concepts of emptiness and void and zero and unsaying uh, that all emerged and really came to the fore in the late Middle Ages, so 13, 14, 15th centuries. So I'm looking at manuscripts, actually. I'm looking at empty spaces, at erased spaces, at non-images, at holes. It's fantastic. It's very difficult. Well, wow, you, you have yeah. a great job. You, you... I love my job so much. You consider death and nothingness and holes. Oh, I wait. And in between, I've done opening bodies of the Virgin Mary. I've done crying. I've done liminal spaces. I've done living sculptures. Oh, it's been so much fun. Do you travel for, for your research? All the time. I'm gone in summer and I go back to Europe and I travel. Actually, researching for the Dance of Death was great fun because I got to go to small towns, to churches that were sometimes abandoned. I got to negotiate with local antiquities keepers and town mayors and climb ladders. And oh, it's it was so much fun. It does sound fun. Um... So that's all we have time for this week. A huge thank you to Alina for joining us. Alina Gertzman is a professor and director of graduate studies in the Art, History and Art Department at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. You can learn more about The Dance of Death in Alina's book, The Dance of Death in the Middle Ages, Image, Text, Performance. And if you have a book-related story to tell, then do let me know by emailing podcast at abebooks.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.